From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing good, despite how I sound. So how are yeah, you, Michael? Gosh, you, you sound like the ghost of Christmas yet to come. I, I think I sound <laughs> like a mixture of that, and then every now and then my voice is cracking. So, of course, I, I got the little bit of Peter Brady thrown in there, yeah, too. Yeah, so. and with oh. a little Lauren Bacall to top it off. Oh, there we go. I'm, it's, I'm like a, a triple threat now. <laughs> yes. Well, I hope you feel better soon, because I know you know you want to start singing Christmas carols. Yes. No. I think. Well, I think that's part of the problem. Is uh, I, I do not hold back when Christmas music's on, and I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm stubborn throughout the years about, uh, you know, singing anything just with the radio. I'm like, let, let the professionals do it. That's what. That's why they're recorded. That's why they're on the radio. But um, when it comes to Christmas music, I I sing loud and I sing proud. So. Um, that's, that's not helping anything, but because even, yeah, Kylie was yelling at me yesterday because I was still trying to sing despite losing my voice. So it's funny what you mentioned, you know, people singing, you know, leave it to professionals. I loved Stephen Porter, who, you know, is our, our colleague on the Diz. I think he was at Candlelight. I think he posted this and he yeah. had he turned around and told people to stop singing. I did that at Disneyland's Candlelight years ago yeah i i we were in the vip section and i turned around and this person was singing and she was not god i'm sure god gave her many gifts uh the gift of song was not one of them and she was belting out and i i turned her and said listen (laughs) i i did not pay to hear you yeah uh, she stopped uh, it was probably good. Nobody knew who I was at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I told him. I said, when he told me that story, I was like, I, it it stinks. But unfortunately, even at Candlelight, the past couple of years now, it's gotten, I don't want to say it's gotten worse and worse because I'm glad people are enjoying themselves so much that they're doing it. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I, I've just already come to accept it, but. Oh, I can't. I, I just, you know, do it, you know, do it surrounded by people you love, but not when, when you know, not things like candlelight or public con- or concerts and things like that. So anyway. So, but speaking of Christmas music, Craig, did you watch the Disney Channel 25 Days of Christmas Holiday Party? No, I did not. I, oh, yeah. I've been really slacking in uh, what I've been watching for the holidays. Yeah, well, this this was a television special that, of course, had uh, it had um, Jordan Fisher, and it was hosted by. Okay, now I know none of these folks, so because this was not geared for me, but I felt I had to watch it. Uh, Disney Channel's Coop and Cammy Ask the World 
stars Ruby Rose Turner and Dakota Lotus. Sure does. Dakota Lotus sounds like something I would enjoy at an Asian restaurant. Um, But anyway, so, but they had uh, a lot of fan favorites, uh, Disney Channel stars that if I rattled them all off, folks would know who they were. I recognize one young man because he's on the Goldbergs. And then, Uh but then... It was clear they they filmed this at the same time they filmed the ABC TV special because Gwen Stefani was on it, Brett Eldridge was on it, Asher Angel was on it, and they were also on the other show. Yeah, Um, they really tried to pack a lot in this time around and get as many specials out of the the inconvenience of having to record there, which I, I get, but it's like maybe get more artists and then save them for only one or two shows, but. Heck. Yeah, they, they rebroadcast the Cinderella Castle lighting from the ABC um, TV Christmas special, Disney Parks Magical Christmas Celebration. Now, the one thing that they highlighted was something I really wasn't familiar with. Uh, it was um, Lightning McQueen's Racing Academy, where they said guests will experience the world of Pixar cars films and come face to face with Lightning McQueen and this is going to be at, at Disney's Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World Resort in spring 2019 and it looked like this was something significant. Yeah somewhat significant so there's uh, this was announced back in the summertime uh, at one of the media events that we were at and mm-hmm. not a lot has been released about it but um, it's being built in the uh, in the the one soundstage that's right beside Rock and Roller Coaster. So it's a big area, big big floor plan. But um, it's I, I am still under the perception that it's probably going to be one of those limited time attractions that's going to end up being around for for twenty years, <laughs> despite it only supposed to be lasting like. You know, maybe five years, but um, we'll we'll have to see on it. So I I'm excited for it. Nonetheless, I talked about it on another show. I don't know if it's been released yet, or if you you know our audiences are all different for everything we do. So I don't know if people even watch it. But um, one of the shows is talking about it. I think it's it's filling a, a void that that is currently missing at Hollywood Studios that. Uh, you know, is something that's super appealing to to younger boys. That you know, eventually down the line, with the Mickey Mouse attraction and and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, I think that'll that'll be a little bit more impactful. But I mean, we're still at least six months off from the opening of Runaway Railway, and I know it's it's fall, so we're actually even further than that. We're probably nine months away from that. Star Wars were easily twelve mm-hmm. months away, so to to just get something in sooner that that can appeal to like especially I think about all like the little toddlers and stuff that will be so wowed by it. Oh yeah! So I, I think it's very excited. A cool addition. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I wanted to let folks know because I, I'm sure some of some of our listeners are probably you know starting to think about. You know their plans going to the D twenty three Expo in August and, of twenty nineteen, and I wanted I wanted to let you know maybe you know maybe this is time to head up to San Francisco at the same time and, and go to the Walt Disney Family Museum. They've just announced an exclusive original exhibition, uh, Mickey Mouse from Walt to the World, 
And this is going to be a huge uh, museum all about Mickey, which is exciting for us since we've been doing a series about Mickey Mouse here on Connecting with Walt. It's also going to be in conjunction with the museum's 10th anniversary. It's going to be running from May 16th, 2019 through January 6th, 2020. And the, the guest curator is, uh, is animator Andreas Stasia. And it's going to have more than 400 objects, including rare and never-before-seen original sketches, you know, character model sheets and concept artwork, along with just all kinds of other stuff. And uh, and it's, it's going to include Mickey's appearances at the Disney parks around the world. And it's going to be great. Uh, so I think, you know, if you've been thinking about, oh, maybe it's time to go to the museum, this this might be a good time to go. And we will hopefully have more information for you and maybe even someone from the museum on the show to talk about this um, exhibition, you know, in 2019. Yeah, no, it's uh, very, very cool. I I hope I finally get get out to see it, too. And, you know, I I will jump on to what you said with that. A lot of people, when when they're thinking about going to the expo, they're also thinking about Disneyland right in there, which Mm -hmm. arguably makes sense since they're they're right next door to each other but i actually i think you know doing doing the expo but then if you're you're able to add on a couple extra days definitely think about driving up the coast and getting up to san francisco and doing that it's because the parks are going to be crowded before during and after the expo so um if you're looking to get a little bit of disney that might be that might be a way to uh to kill two birds with one stone. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. Either drive up; it can be a it can be a nice drive, or it's like a you know, barely a two hour flight. Yeah, but that drive going going up the coast and going through Monterey and mm-hmm. just seeing the sight like it's it's so beautiful. Well, it let, let's just hope that highway. One is open again because we've had landslides. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, California's so, had some rough times. <laughs> we we have had some rough times, but um, anyway. But yes, it is a beautiful drive. Yeah, but um, and oh, and um, you know, to, speaking of Mickey, of course, something we didn't mention on our Destination D uh, marathon shows was that uh, I think Craig, we have to do three episodes for the next Destination D. Yeah. Um, but uh, but w- one of the gifts that we got were, was a set of six magnets of Mickey's official portraits from 1953 through 2008. Yes. Curiously, not, um, not one of his official portrait for his 90th anniversary. Yes, so, we did. We did. I didn't. It was, we got handed it as we were leaving um, the, I want to say it was... Leaving after Runaway Railway, maybe? They did not give it to me. Or maybe it was... It might have been the first day. We did get handed it, though. Uh, at one point when we were leaving the one of the presentations. They didn't give it to me. Oh my gosh, I got an unsharpened pencil. And I missed out on the magnet. Yeah, no, it was... They were handing them out at the door. Kind of like after the Mary Poppins... Um, after the Mary Poppins one, we got handed a poster for that. The same mm-hmm. happened with the 90th anniversary magnet. It was I somehow missed that. Yeah, I don't know how. Hmm. 
Well, if anybody has an extra magnet out there, let me know. (laughs) All those people who came with multiple people, you don't need multiple magnets. (laughs) That's right. Well, unless you have don't live together and all that and then that's different but <laughs> yeah yeah so one of the other gifts that we got was basically a, a scan code for a, the free soundtrack of Mary Poppins returns have you listened to it yet Craig I did yes and no so um I forgot about the scan code but I have Apple Music so when it released um last this past Friday I added it anyways and was able to listen to it right then. Um, I went and played one song that we heard a decent amount of that they talked mm-hmm. about um, while we were there. So I was like, oh, well, it's it's no use in really uh, waiting to hear this one once it's in the movie because I already heard so much of it at, at that panel. What What spoilers could be in there? And mm-hmm. it was about two minutes in. And there was a major plot spoiler from it. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I said, nope, I'm not listening to any more songs. There's actually, in a couple of them, there's dialogue. Yep, and that's that what it was. Is, um, that is, that that, that that does spoil some of it. So yeah, a, a warning to folks <laughs> about that. So um, Yeah, I... And it's, it's very nice music, so... I yeah, I liked it. I liked what I heard from the one song, and it sounded even better when it was all of the talent and actors and actresses singing in it. But mm-hmm. um, it, it ruined a what I assume will be a pretty important part of the plot. So mm-hmm. it's like I I just don't want to take that chance with the rest of it. So usually I like listening to stuff before I go see it, so that way I can uh, like especially when it's di- um this actual singing, I already know the words and it's a lot easier for me to put it all together. But with this, I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to go in blind. So I'm seeing it in Dolby. So the sound should be excellent anyways, and I should be able to make it all out, but uh, it's, it's fine. I also got my adventures insiders tickets from adventures by Disney. So uh, I had my tickets bought for Mary Poppins returns. And now I've been given uh, four extra tickets as well too. How nice. So I'll be able to see it until my brain melts. Boy, I didn't get. I went on that big old China trip, and they didn't give me a thing. Did you get your? <laughs> you'll keep waiting for your mail. You'll get it. Oh, okay. Yeah, alrighty. So, but um, yeah, it was interesting. The soundtrack didn't get any Golden Globe nominations, but I'm listening to the music, and I thought, you know, and, and so you have to give me your impressions when after you see the film and hear the music. But I thought you can hear the difference between, um, you know, the Sherman brothers came from writing pop music, you know, and that, I think that showed in the soundtrack of Mary Poppins in the sense of how catchy the music and the lyrics are. And compared to Mary Poppins Returns, where the songwriters came from a Broadway background. Yeah. And the music is very different. Yeah. I, so, I, I'm not really surprised by it. It's actually, it's, you know, I don't think it's also going to get nominated for any any Academy Awards 
for music as well either, whether it's song or score, but uh, it's also been a, a very busy year in terms of original music in movies and and also really good scores out there. So it has to be the best of the best mm-hmm. at this point. And it, I'm not but, saying it's not, yeah. but there's been a lot of good stuff. <laughs> if it ever goes to Broadway, I think it would get Tony Awards because it's, yeah. it's that kind of music. I could see so, that. And I'm sure they're already working on something with it. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. So, but anyway, but I I thoroughly enjoyed the music. So, um, and there is one song that actually is very catchy that is probably at the end of the film. <laughs> so, um, anyway, and um, but yeah, so that's it. So, so that's about it. So, um, so so let's uh, let's continue on. Our connecting with Walt family knows. That December is a bittersweet month in the history of Walt Disney. We celebrate his birth on December 5th, and we take a moment to look back over his many accomplishments on December 15th, the date of his passing. And each December, Craig and I like to devote at least one episode to Walt Disney. I'm joining us this week to talk about an aspect of Walt Disney in his studio that has received very little attention is Disney artist, animator, filmmaker, historian, and author Dave Bossert. Dave, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me on again. I, I always enjoy talking with you, and uh, and I hope your your listening audience enjoys hearing from us. Oh, they do. We got a lot of positive feedback, and you were on the show um, talking about the history of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and his book, Oz, and your book <laughs> about Oswald, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney cartoons. And since you wrote that book, there was some big news in the history of Oswald that your book played a central role in. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, A gentleman over in Japan uh, had purchased a copy of my book, and uh, he is an avid Disney fan over there. In fact, Back in 1951, when he was in high school, uh, he actually uh, purchased a reel of film, a 16-millimeter reel of film, uh, and it had a Mickey Mouse, kind of a crude off-model Mickey Mouse, I would say, too, uh, title card to it. And it was sold as Mickey Mouse Speedy. That was the name of it uh, uh, in Japanese. And... Uh, it turned out that that was not a Mickey Mouse cartoon. It was two minutes of the Oswald, the lost Oswald cartoon, neck and neck. And Mr. Watanabe, uh, the gentleman in Japan, uh, he's now 84, 85 years old. Uh, he um, uh, got hooked up with a reporter from one of the Japanese newspapers and that person uh, uh, spoke English. M- Mr. Watanabe do- doesn't speak English, um, or doesn't speak it very well. He's and he's not technology te- technically savvy. So this reporter was the go-between, and and she reached out to me, and um, 
I was really quite excited about it, Michael. I have to tell you, you, you know, it's it, when you get these sort of out of left field uh, calls or emails that say, I think I have something. I was, I was really excited by it. And, um, uh, they sent me a quick time movie of, of the two minutes and I was able to match it to the script that's in the book under the neck and neck chapter. And, uh, and so I authenticated the film as being, um, uh, neck and neck. It was a two minute portion of neck and neck. So that was very exciting. And, um, from there, uh, I asked, uh, Mr. Watanabe, uh, if I could have permission from him to use four images, uh, for, uh, a revised version of the book. And, and I have to tell everybody this, and I know some people might grumble about it, but you know, when, when the book came out last year, um, it was as complete as it could be. And that's what we told people in the text. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there were still uh, uh, seven cartoons missing. And so my hope was that we would do revised versions of the book periodically to update it. And uh, I'm fortunate now to tell you guys that we're doing a, re- a revised special edition of the of the oswald book for d23 it's going to come out at you know in uh in late spring in time for d23 and that is going to have a foreword written by bob Iger, and it's uh going to have six lithographs uh that i selected to to have made into lithographs uh, six images and it's going to have the four still frames from neck and neck Oh, wow. uh, and some revised text. So um, I'm, I'm really thrilled about that. And I'm hoping that, you know, uh, the find in Japan will, because that, you know, that made the news all over the world. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. noticed that. The BBC picked up on it. CNN picked up on it. Yeah. I, I even have a friend in, in Italy who sent me a link to an Italian newspaper that had an article on it. And, and and I can't read Italian, but I could pick out my last name. <laughs> I, I was I was really thrilled by that. How exciting that you're a part of Oswald's history so much. Not just writing his history, but you helped unearth some of his lost history. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, uh, before I even wrote the book, I, I was part of a group that helped to repatriate... Um, uh, six lost cartoons because when when Disney uh, got the rights to the 26 films back from Universal uh, and that was all Bob Iger's doing um, and uh, and I write I, I write about that a little bit in some of the revised uh, text in the in the special edition um, but they only had 13 prints Universal half of them were missing they were lost. And, uh, my feeling was that, uh, you know, out in Los Angeles, a lot of us remember this, but many, many years ago, it was gotta be 10 or 15 years ago, probably, um, a storage facility on the universal lot, uh, went up in flames and, yes. I, and they lost a lot of material in that fire, uh, irreplaceable, you know? And so we have to rely on 
uh, the 16 millimeter home movie prints that were distributed back in the 30s and 40s and 50s as a you know, they were rentals in, in a lot of countries. And so a lot of these lost Oswalds are starting to pop up or have popped up uh, in film archives in Europe and now Japan. Uh, you know, this one surfaced with an individual. But, you know, we found uh, Africa Before Dark mislabeled uh, in the Austrian Film uh, Museum and archive and we, there was a film found up in norway another in belgium a couple in england so i i i'm pretty confident and I, i'm always optimistic that we'll find all of them eventually oh that's exciting and then you have to keep updating your book <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that the next time there's an update we'll have like material for three or four lost <laughs> to go into it you know that would be great. Well, speaking of books, you just published a new book. Kim yes, uh, uh, Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios. And so what inspired you to write a book about Kim Weber and, a Disney st- and the work he did for the Disney Studios? Well, I, I got to tell you guys um, that I was working on a desk, a 1939 Kim Weber desk for my 32 years at Disney. And when I was leaving the studio, they gave me my desk. And I was thrilled to have it. And instead of using it as a drawing board, I laid the drawing board flat and I put my computer on it. And that's my writing desk now. (laughs) And so uh, in the summer of, let's see, it would have been the summer of 2017, I was working on a manuscript for uh, Craig. Are you sitting down, Craig? Oh, I am. I am. I was working on the manuscript for the making of the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> and and so while I was working on that one day, I I kind of sat back in my chair and I and I sort of put my uh, hands behind my head to just kind of stretch for a moment and take a break. And I started looking at my desk that I was sitting at. And I just started wondering if anybody had written anything about the, the, the furniture. And so I wound up blowing the whole afternoon because I started doing all this research online, looking for stuff. And um, there was nothing. Uh, there was one book uh, really a wonderful book by an author named Christopher Long, who's a, uh, an architectural professor at a, a university, I believe in Texas. And he uh, had done a book on Cam Weber, but it was more of a encompassing Cam Weber's life and all of his work. And there's one chapter in there on the Disney Studios, but it really primarily talks about the facility it had one or two images of the desk, and it had a few little bits, uh, uh, quotes about the furniture, but nothing significant. And uh, and I just thought, you know, I'd really like to, to write something about this furniture before it's really lost to time. Because um, a lot of the furniture has gone to the wind. Um, you know, uh, Disney actually took some truckloads of the furniture decades ago to the dump 
together. Oh my gosh. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, and then over the years as the, as, as the films transition from hand drawn to computer generated, those desks really just had become outdated, you know, and, uh, and were, and they were huge. They were heavy. It took three or four movers to move those desks. Uh, they're real behemoths, you know, but it was a rock solid foundation to draw on. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the studio periodically had some warehouse sales where they'd sell some of the furniture out to, uh, uh, the artists, uh, if they wanted it. And, uh, anyway, uh, I, I just felt like I wanted to go and interview some of the artists who had worked on that furniture on, on the various pieces of furniture. So I was fortunate enough. I, I just was emailing all my friends, you know, so I, I interviewed Don Hahn and John Musker, uh, Jorgen Klubin, story artist, Tony Anselmo was very generous because he had a collection of Weber furniture, uh, which he's actually loaned right now. It's up at the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco as part of the Nine Old Men show that's going on up there. And Brenda Chapman and Karen Keller, uh, James Coleman, background painter. You know, so I talked to a whole bunch of folks about the furniture. I even talked to um, uh, uh, Winston Hibbler's grandson, Chris Hibbler. Uh, who used to work at the studio. He was like a third generation uh, family, you know, employee. And, uh, um, you know, I interviewed him. And so I really wanted to, to sort of delve into it and, and give people a sense of, you know, how important this furniture was and why it was designed the way it was. Yeah. So now can you tell our listeners a little about who is Kim Weber and, and also tell us, can you describe mid-century modern and West Coast modernism that sure. he was, yeah. it, that he really introduced in many ways? Yeah. You know, um, so let me start with what modernism is, uh, mm-hmm. mid-century, okay? And mid-century, and I say this in the book, is a little hard to nail down. It depends on who you talk to. Some people are going to say it's it's the late 40s to the early 60s. Um, some people sit there and say, you know, the thirties to the early sixties is kind of the, the mid century modern, but, uh, streamline modern, which is, a, which is a variation. It, we, we really have to go back to the 1920s and art deco. Okay. So art deco, uh, flourished over in Paris in the 1920s. And I think most people are kind of familiar with, uh, with art deco. From Art Deco, there were two stylistic movements that kind of came as offshoots of that. One was called zigzag modern, and one was called streamline modern. The zigzag modern, really, you see a lot of examples of it in uh, New York City, uh, Chicago. It's the skyscrapers. A great example would be the Chrysler Building. Most people are familiar with the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building. Those would fall into sort of that uh, zigzag modern. uh, and, And what zigzag modern did was, uh, it, it added a lot of ornamentation uh, to uh, the, the, the um, uh, facades 
so if you look at the top of the Chrysler building, there's the little triangle windows that go around the, the top of the uh, um, top of the building. Um, they they drew um, some of their uh, design inspiration from uh, Greek, ancient Greece, um, ancient Egyptian, um, uh, American Indian. Uh, so you see some of this design work that's uh, ornamentation. Now, the streamlined modern side was was queuing off of modern transportation at the time, steamships, uh, trains, and airplanes. And the idea behind streamlined modern was to strip away all the ornamentation, make it as clean and you know aerodynamic as possible. And so from the Streamline Modern, which really was um, uh, Ken Weber's uh, forte, he was sort of on the leading edge of that, um, you get sort of that California relaxed um, mid-century styling. And, um, And it's very evident at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank. Uh, when you walk around, you can see circular porthole-inspired um, uh, windows and uh, the uh, door handles on some of the doors. Although some of that stuff has been uh, sort of replaced over the years, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but there's still evidence of it around the studio. And uh, so... You know, he uh, was really the dean of, uh, of West Coast modernism, which really was a branch of, of streamlined modern, mm-hmm. you know. And so in New York City, it was all about vertical, about mm-hmm. building up. You come out to the West Coast and it was open spaces. And so you've got those low ranch uh, style um uh, homes. Uh, there's a lot of great examples of them out in Palm Springs. And uh, with Streamline Modern, uh, it really was these clean lines mm-hmm. uh, and uh, less ornamentation and making the, the form itself function, uh, form and function married together. Um, and, and that's really, and, and by the way, um, uh, Art Center School of Design in Pasadena. Kem Weber, through the 1930s, was the head of the architectural industrial design department uh, in Pasadena. So, you know, it, it afforded him a steady income and, he, and it allowed him to continue to work professionally designing through the depths of the Great Depression. Oh, excellent. Now, what I want to do is sort of set the stage for what was happening at the Hyperion studio that led to Walt working with Kim Weber and, you know, on at the Burbank studio. So it was reported that the success of Snow White, you know, allowed Walt and Roy to build the land on which the Burbank studio was constructed. But in reality, Walt had been planning a new studio years before. So what were the circumstances at the Hyperion studio that prompted Walt to start planning a new studio so many years in advance? Yeah, that's a great question, Michael, because really uh, the, the Hyperion studio was this hodgepodge. You got to remember when they were on uh, Kingswell Road, 
uh, they started out in a small storefront with a handful of people. You know, uh, I don't even think it was in the double digits. I think it was like six or seven people. They uh, and then they moved down the street to the Hyperion facility, and the Hyperion facility just was a hodgepodge. They kept adding on to during the 1930s. And so by the time they're doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, they're they're crammed for you know they're 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 so tight for space. They're sticking people everywhere they possibly can. You got guys on top of one another, and I'm sure a lot of folks have seen some of those early pictures where it was just one desk next to another, and you know you could stretch your arm out and touch the guy next to you. Um, so uh, he really, I think, wanted to build uh, a perfect animation studio uh, a studio that was designed around the production of animated cartoons and uh, was set up in a way that made it efficient uh, to the process and so after the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs a lot of people say that Walt uh, because of the money he made on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs it allowed him to buy the property in Burbank but that was the first, furthest thing from the, from the truth because by the time he bought the property in Burbank uh, they had already spent most of the money they got from Snow White <laughs> uh, and so uh, he actually went and bought the 51 acre piece of property um, while uh, his brother Roy O was out of town. Oh, funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so I could not find any written evidence as to why Walt selected Kem Weber other than to say that Kem Weber had written some articles for the LA Times and for some architectural magazines. He was involved with Art Center. And he also uh, was uh, just somebody who was known within the arts community of Los Angeles. Uh, and he had designed some uh, buildings down on Wilshire Boulevard, some department stores. Uh, so Walt would have been aware of him at the time. And, uh, and so Walt kind of had it in his head what he wanted to do for the Burbank studio, but he needed a chief designer to make it happen. Somebody mm -hmm. who knew how to communicate with the contractors and uh, be able to actually do the designs. And, uh, and, and so the idea was to get away from this hodgepodge. Uh, and the furniture was part of that because, you know, um, they they were using just off the shelf uh, office desks, these wooden office desks that they added shelving to the back of, and uh, and uh, put a drawing board on top of, and uh, those were the animation desks at the Hyperion Studio. So um, when he was having the Burbank Studio designed, he also asked Weber to design some animation furniture for the various disciplines, and had uh, some of his top artists work with Cam Weber on sort of creating the perfect animation desk or the perfect background desk. And so that, I thought, was really uh, pretty fantastic. There's evidence that Frank Thomas was very instrumental in the design of the animation desk. Uh, and there's some quotes uh, about that uh, in the book. And... Uh, and so, you know, they literally made all of the furniture for the all the animation desks were made in 90 days at the Peterson 
showcase and fixture company in Los Angeles, California. And the building where all that furniture was made is still there uh, down on San Pedro Street in in downtown. It's it's in a dicey neighborhood, though, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) So now what was interesting, because in in your book and and other and other places I've I've read about this studio is that Walt was so ahead of his time in designing this studio in that because he commissioned a study of the studio's needs before it was built. You right. know, and but he wanted a park like campus to marry, you know, function and design with some of the comforts for his employees, like expansive lawn areas for picnics, a baseball field, ping pong tables, horseshoe and volleyball courts. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that like Google, Apple, Yahoo—I mean, they—they—they've been noted and heralded for doing similar, more you know, more contemporary things to their campuses today. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I—I uh, I think it's mentioned in the book. I know, I know, Don Hahn mentioned it, and I and I expanded on it. it. It's literally the Walt Disney Studio property in Burbank. The studio lot was the original creative campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and and it's amazing that you know seventy years, eighty years later, uh, here we are, and there's all these tech companies that are building creative campuses. Uh, and Walt had the commissary built because he wanted to make sure that his employees at least had one hot meal a day. And the studio underwrote that commissary for decades. Uh, it wasn't a profit center. He wanted to, to just break even, uh, cover the costs, and give give his employees, you know, a, a an inexpensive meal. And that actually, I will point out, that was going on into the early '80s. Uh, when I started working at the studio, I remember uh, how inexpensive it was to get a hot meal at the commissary, uh, and uh, it, there was. Uh, a dry cleaner and a hairstylist and a masseuse and a gym and uh, you know there was all of these things uh, to really uh, uh, make this utopian campus he wanted. Now, now in your book, Ken Weber: Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios, you write that Walt was involved in the planning of every detail of the new studio. Um, how was Walt involved, and how well did Walt and Kim get along? Walt was talking with Kem every day. Uh, he was he was communicating with him, and so what Walt was doing early on was they had made some models of buildings, and they he was having meetings after hours with some of his artists and saying, you know, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we put the theater here? They were moving stuff around on you know on the floor with these little models they made, uh, trying to figure out what the best way of um, constructing the studio would be you know uh, i relay one of the stories in there of one an artist asking the question about uh what happens if it rains and they they sat and had a whole conversation about you know how often does it rain in los angeles and you know what can we do and this and that and they wound up putting a tunnel in uh between the animation production building and the ink and paint building so that the artwork could be transported uh, without being affected by the elements, and and you know that didn't didn't last very long. I, I wrote a little bit about that. It just the tunnel became you know a place for storage and for uh, tris between some <laughs> of his employees. So 
Um, but uh, yeah, they did talk about things. And you know, it's interesting the way the, the, the studios laid out because the animation production building, which is the central building to the studio lot when it was first built, is actually laid out on an exact north-south axis so that half of the offices in the building got natural light from uh, from the north. So, you know, and, that, and I think that was, again, something that the artists wanted. They wanted natural light, so all of the offices in the animation production building have windows. So there's some amount of light that's coming in um, throughout the day. And, uh, you know, so he was he was obviously talking with uh, Weber on a regular basis. Um, he was asking for his artists to communicate with uh, Weber on the design of some of the specialized furniture. Um, there's some great photographs in the book of Walt with Weber uh, and Howard Peterson of the Peterson company uh, that built the furniture, you know, talking and uh, talking about the furniture and going over drawings and uh, inspecting components that were being made. So, uh, and you know, it's very interesting. Some of the furniture has some very unique aspects to it, like a stainless steel cigarette guard, uh, that's on the animation desk because at the Hyperion studio, the artists who smoked would frequently, you know, take a drag off their cigarette and then lay it on the side of the desk while they drew. And sometimes that cigarette would burn down and actually burn the wood. And so you had the desk that had these little burn marks on the edge of them. And so to prevent that happening on the new furniture, they put this uh, metal strip on the shelf on either side of the drawing board. Uh, and then uh, there's a deep drawer in the lower section of, the, of some of the furniture, some of the desks, um, that uh, was uh, the height of a fifth of alcohol. So you can't stand a bottle of scotch or gin up in that drawer and close it, you know, and, and those, you know, those were not accidental uh, because smoking was common at the time. And it was also OK for uh, employees to have a bottle of liquor in their offices for an afternoon, you know, little afternoon snort if they wanted Oh, my goodness. Boy, boy, how times have changed. In your book, you highlight various types of customized furniture for the studio. And probably for most of us, the most well-known piece many of us have seen displayed at the Disney Hollywood Studios, the Walt Disney Family Museums, and special events is the animator's desk that you've talked about. Can you tell us a little more about the history of the design and construction and use of this important piece? I think Walt was, because he was an artist, he was keen on getting his top guys to uh, give input on what the actual needs were. And and the designer, Ken Weber, listened to them. Uh, and so when you look at the various pieces of furniture, they're designed for those specific disciplines. So you've got an animator's desk. You've got an assistant's desk. The assistant's desk has a lot more shelf space because within the hand-drawn animation process, the assistant has to spread the scene out, lay drawings out on the desk, uh, and have paper and all of those things. So you need to have that shelf space for it. Whereas with the background painters, the background painters need to have, um, you know, they had a flat board, uh, at the back of the desk that had, uh, uh, it was a cork board 
that uh, they could pin reference artwork to. Uh, and um, they had a, a pull-out drawer that would hold uh, a, a glass paint palette. And there was also a circle cut out in the top shelf of the pull-out drawer that had a ceramic crock that sat in that cutout, uh, which had uh, you know the water for the paints. And so, you know, I'm imagining, and I had talked to some of the background painters that, you know, the background artists at the Hyperion Studio must have spilled their little tub of water a few times <laughs> to, to warrant having a cutout where you could sit a crock into it and it won't get knocked over, you know? So, you know, the little things like that that are uh, specific to a discipline uh, that uh, an outside designer would not have a clue to. Uh, unless you know they sat and talked with the artists about the needs um the uh director's desk is another great example of having i mean there was 32 square feet on the top of the direct large director's desk and that was so that the director could actually lay out a whole scene lay out exposure sheets and be able to go over the artwork uh, with with the artists uh, that they were having the conversation with so, um, you know, and then as far as the construction of the furniture goes, you know, one of the things that I talk about is that at a lot of the other studios, it was all sort of homemade furniture and the homemade furniture. And I've, I've been at some of these boutique studios over the years, you know, it, there's a little wobble to the desk, you know, it's, it's a little flimsier. Uh, when you sit at a Ken Weber animation desk, it is a solid foundation. You know, it is it is an absolutely solid piece of furniture that does not move. And uh, it was construction. Some of the framing was um, uh, white pine, and uh, it was uh, mostly solid core birch plywood. Uh, so you know, these these were built to be. Uh, put into an office and kept there. They didn't, in the early days, they didn't move the furniture very much. In the later years, in the, in the 90s in particular, in the early 2000s, they were constantly moving artists. And it literally took studio movers like, you know, three to four guys to move these pieces of furniture. The other interesting aspect that I want to bring up about the furniture was that it was a modular design. There were lower pieces and upper pieces and you could mix and match them so mm -hmm. there was some level of customization for the artist if he wanted to have you know a series of smaller drawers or if he wanted to have one small drawer and a, and a very deep drawer for his bottle of liquor uh you know he could do that uh and so i thought that was really uh pretty uh imaginative uh to be able to come up with it uh, uh, to come up with that kind of a modular design where you could mix and match pieces and they all fit together properly. Yeah, that's amazing. And in your book, you have some just beautiful photos of the furniture, um, the description of them. Um, there's some wonderful graphics that really detail the uh, each piece yes. of the furniture in there. Um I mean, it, they're, they're, it's just beautiful. And we were talking off air about how about the photos themselves. If you can 
share. I mean, because the, the, the photos have almost a, a dimensional quality to them. Yeah, they do. You know, when, when we were putting this book together, and I say we, because my wife, Nancy, is a uh, designer and art director, and she actually designed and laid out the whole book. And uh, one of the things we did was we, we spoke with the printer, and, uh, and the book was printed in Chicago, and I actually went to Chicago and talked with the printer about you know, the various techniques that we could employ in the book. And, you know, one of them was that when the photo is printed on, the photos are printed on top of a paper that has a matte finish to it. And, and then we hit the photo with a spot varnish. And it's that spot varnish that's making the, the, the pictures feel like they're dimensional and they're popping off the page. Mm-hmm. And, and and we just felt like it was just a, a, a beautiful thing to to be able to do uh, on all the images in the book and uh, and really make it feel like the book itself was a piece of art. You know, it, it, in a sense, you know, I I think I mentioned earlier, I, I really looked at this uh, as being a love letter to the furniture. Mm-hmm. I, and I say that in the book because, you know, I had worked on, on the Weber furniture for decades and, uh, and, you know, uh, it was just, you know, I spent so much time at that desk and it was so good to me, you know, uh, that it really was my love letter to, to this furniture. And also it was a record. Uh, it was a way of aggregating everything I could find on the furniture and put it into one book. And, it, and it's a, it's a reference, uh, for the future because 50, 70, 80, hundred years from now, you know, all of us will be gone. Uh, but, uh, there'll be a record of what this furniture was and how it was used and, uh, why it was made the way it was made. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that Craig and I did is we went on the first tour together of at, at the studios when they opened up Walt's office and there are some beautiful you know Kim Weber pieces in there one of the one of the pieces though that both Craig and I said moved us the most was the piano because we know you know the Sherman brothers had come in on Fridays and play uh, you know feed the birds for Walt I didn't realize until I read your book that piano was designed by Kim Weber. Yes, it was, you know, and uh, and there's some nice photos of it in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the book as well. There's people out there who may never get to Burbank and ever get to see it in person. And, and I just felt it would be nice to have some of those images in there. I agree. And I think that's a great reason for folks to purchase this book because you get to see the studio, you know, and even if you've been there in a, in a very different way, you have some beautiful um, Ken Weber concept art for the yeah. furniture, for the studio, his different ideas. One of the things though, that you had that I really loved was, and, and it's funny, it's a, it's a little concept art drawing, but on that tour, in the space that was Walt's private suite is sort of now they have rotating exhibits in there because they said they don't, they really didn't have anything from there to put in. You have the concept art of what that suite looked like in there. Yes. And yeah. In fact, that piece of concept art shows a daybed 
uh, which mm-hmm. was just the concept. It was never they never built it that way, and uh, and I'm sure that that would have raised eyebrows if they did uh, in today's you know Me Too uh, <laughs> world and everything you know. But uh, but frankly, um, I just thought it was interesting to see the the, the different aspects of it. Yeah, I, the concept art is beautiful. Again, especially on that matte finish that you talked about. Yeah. Um, they really pop. And you also have a number of photos in the book that I have not seen published anywhere else. Yes. So. Yeah, those, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when Weber completed the work at the studio, he uh, he hired a photographer named Baskerville. And uh, he came to the studio after everybody had moved in and was working on, on stuff. And he went around and photographed some of his work. Um, and presumably Walt obviously let him do that because as an artist, you know, you want to have a record of the work you did and, uh, Weber was a designer and an architect. And so to be able to have photos of his handiwork to put in his portfolio for future clients to see, you know, and so, uh, you, you know, there's a wonderful side by side of, his drawing of a stairwell and what the actual stairwell looks like with the, with the uh, banister uh, that he designed. Uh, so there's things like that. There's, there's a beautiful shot of the director's desk uh, with um, Joe Grant sitting in a um, airline chair and uh, Dick humor on the other side of the desk and a couple other artists. Uh, and it was during the, uh, pastoral sequence that was uh, in production on Fantasia, so that would have been 1940. You know, so uh, yeah, there was uh, I think some uh, some really nice little finds uh, that I was able to dig up. Uh, and and by the way, uh, all of that material comes from Ken Weber's archive. Oh, interesting. Uh, so you know, yeah, and, uh, and and so that's why there's some of those images in there that people have never seen before. That's great. Boy, thank goodness he kept things. <laughs> yeah, I just, I wish there was more written correspondence. That would have been really nice. Yeah. Okay, now let's say, you know, I mentioned that like Craig and I did the D23 tour. I've been on Adventures by Disney tour of the studios. Let's say if you were our tour guide of the studios, yes. what are some things you might point out to us that you would really want us to take note of, of Kem Weber's designs that maybe the average person wouldn't notice or the average tour guide might not point out? Yeah, you know, one of the first things would be the uh, color palette of the buildings, Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, Walt Walt asked Weber to do uh, some sort of a color palette that uh, made the place feel cheery uh, and not just so drab with you know these just you know buildings drop down and uh, Weber put together uh, what I think is a really beautiful uh, color palette uh, of beige cream colors um, the terracotta reds and the cactus greens. And those are really reflective of the desert landscape of the American Southwest. He, he used that color palette for, for the buildings. And I, what I find interesting about that is that 
in contemporary times when they built the Team Disney building, the architect that built that building cued off of those colors and has that color scheme on the exterior to help integrate that new building into the studio lot. I think the only building that uh, sort of got a fail grade for me uh, as far as integration into the studio lot was the uh, Royal Disney building, uh, which was this concrete behemoth that just sat there. Uh, and eventually they allowed it to get covered with uh, vines. Uh, but then what happened with the, with that was that uh, the, the, uh, there was all kinds of rodents nesting in all those vines and and then they were they were dining at the commissary at night, <laughs> and so they wound up having to shut the commissary down for about a week to to take care of all of that. And they stripped all the vines off of the building, and then they they went in and and did some new architectural features to kind of soften the concrete. But uh, but if you look at that color palette for the original animation building and the ink and paint building and whatnot. The, you know, as I mentioned, the Team Disney building has that. But if you go down to Orlando um, and look at some of the uh, commercial buildings along US 4 um, by Walt Disney World, uh, where Celebration is, mm-hmm. uh, you can see some of the mid-century uh, influence in the design of those buildings and some of the color palette, too. The, those, those soft cactus greens and the, the creams and beige colors. So Great. All right. Yeah, I never would have thought of looking at the color palette. You know, I would talk about that, and I would certainly talk about, uh, you know, uh, the tunnel and uh, uh, some of the architectural features that are around the entrance to the anime, uh, to the uh, theater on the studio lot. Because when you think of a theater, it's really just a rectangular box. But Weber added some ornamentation, uh, very simple ornamentation, but it was at least a little bit more visually appealing than just having this, you know, box sitting there that had a theater in it. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the kinds of things I would point out things that people no, normally wouldn't uh, really take note of uh, until you did point them out. Well, if you ever, if you ever do a tour, I want you to call me and Craig. We'll be the first <laughs> ones to sign up for it. Absolutely. So, um, now. So I, I just can't recommend this book highly enough especially to our listeners because you know you're uh, are connecting with Walt family are part of the family because they love Disney history and Ken Weber mid-century furniture designs for the Disney studios is filling a void really in Disney history so I think this is really a must-have for um, people's collections you know, I would agree story. with you. I would absolutely agree with you, but I am biased on that. Yeah, yes, you are. I, I'm sure you are. And um, but but you know that it's it's a well deserved bias, I think. Here um, now now where can our listeners um, purchase your books? Get a hand. Get yeah, hand there's something. Uh, the book is available uh, at Amazon and at Barnes and Noble online. Uh, and uh, if they order it uh, today, they'll have it in two days, I guess, uh, if they're Prime members. And uh, 
there's I, I'm doing one book signing uh, in Los Angeles on December 16th at Walt's Barn right by Griffith Park in uh, Los Angeles. So they can purchase a copy there if they want to get it signed. I'll be there that Sunday um, uh, signing books along with my friend Don Hahn, who's signed uh-huh. his Nine Old Men book and I think his uh, – uh, he's got his uh, Yesterday's Tomorrow, which is a beautiful mid-century uh, uh, design book uh, from uh, you know that talks about all aspects of Disney from that period. Mm-hmm. That's great, and what a wonderful place to have your book signing, where um, where, where there are in a barn where Walt actually worked in, and he actually constructed some of what's in that barn. Yeah, so that that's perfect. Yeah, and, and that barn was where he did all his tinkering with his backyard railroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a very special place. I, Craig and I always say if you really want to connect with Walt, where you can really touch things that he touched, yeah. um, that that's the place to go. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, are you working on any special projects right now you can share with our listeners? You mentioned one that – when you mentioned it off air, Craig's very excited about, and that's the the making of the Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, so, so we, yeah, we've got making <laughs> of the Nightmare Before Christmas, which is going to come out next June in time for the D twenty three convention, and um, imagining I'll probably do at least one book signing there for that, and then there is uh, also uh, the uh, revised special edition of the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit uh, book. And then I am working on a really interesting project. I'm just starting on it right now, actually, uh, now that the Weber book is out there. Um, And it's uh, 3D Disneyland. And uh, it's going to feature a collection of stereoscopic uh, pictures of uh, Disneyland from the late 50s to the early 1980s. Wow. Yeah. That. Uh, that will be amazing. And when I say late 50s, <laughs> it's really actually uh, the photos are from 55 when the park opened through 58, 59. And then uh, I'm working on filling in some images for the 60s, the 70s. And then uh, there's a whole bunch from the early 80s. And so uh, and we're going to do that as a 3D book. So you'll have a pair of glasses and you'll be able to look at all these images in 3D. All of these are very unique books. I mean, that last one really blows me away. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and and again, I I, I think I mentioned to you off air uh, earlier that, uh, you know, I'm always looking at projects that I think people would find interesting because I guess – I find them very fascinating. So I kind of feel like if I find something really interesting and fascinating, I think other people might as well. Uh, and so I'm trying to do projects that uh, people haven't done before or haven't really, you know, written about. Uh, the Weber book is a perfect example. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas, there's, there's one book out about it from when the movie was made. But, you know, my book is really a making of that movie through the eyes of all the artists that worked on it. Because I interviewed 
most of the animators and I interviewed Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. I talked to him about the music and, you know, I really uh, sort of reached out to a lot of people and, and tell it from, from the eyes of the artists. And I actually worked on that movie myself. So, you know, I, I know most of these people and, and was able to reach out to them and, and just talk about the movie 25 years on because it, it has turned into uh, just a, a phenomenon. It seems, it seems to get more popular every year. It does. It does. Yeah. So, you know, Craig will be producing um, the live broadcasts for the Diz from the D23 Expo. Craig, I bet that if Dave wandered over, we, we could do an, a live on-air interview with him about that book. No, I'm sure we absolutely could. So, <laughs> I would absolutely wander over there to do that. Oh, absolutely. I think Craig would be very excited to do that. Yeah, I think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, so, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of uh, projects going on. I'm, I'm developing a book on Claude Coates uh, with uh, Claude's son, Alan Coates. Um, and we're hopeful that we can get, get some traction on that. I think Claude is one of the um, uh, more uh, unsung heroes uh, of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, he's one of the original Imagineers that Walt uh, handpicked to, to help build Disneyland. And uh, he had an amazing, you know, 55 plus year career uh, at the studio. And, uh, and so we want to tell that story. Uh, that I'd be very interested in having on the show about because I have talked many times with Craig about wanting to do an episode on Claude Coates. Yeah. Well, you know something? I, I'd love to do that with you guys and uh, have Alan Coates on. And Alan himself is an Imagineer, uh, just so you know. Uh, he worked at, uh, at Imagineering for many, many years. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, being able to do something with him uh, on his father. And, I, and by the way, I knew Claude. Um, I had met Claude early on in my career at Disney. Uh, he was sort of at the, in the twilight of his career, uh, and I was just beginning mine. And we had this little overlap for about a year and a half. And, and I had met him uh, one day in the Imagineering Commissary, and uh, I introduced myself. And uh, from that point on, a couple times a week, we just early in the morning because he was an early person like me. You know, seven seven thirty in the morning, uh, he'd be getting a black coffee and a donut, and I'd be over there grabbing a little breakfast, and we'd sit and chat a couple times a week for a while until he retired. And he was wow. just one of the nicest men, just a really incredibly talented uh, artist, uh, and, uh, just, a, a, a gentle giant. I mean, you know, he was, he was six foot six or something, six foot seven. He was a tall guy. Uh, and, but he was just the, the nicest, most generous individual. Well, Dave, I, I know you're going to be back on this show many times because <laughs> <laughs> you have lots of stuff. I know Craig and I, and our listeners would love to hear about, so, um, so, oh, you mentioned about book plates that yes. folks can download from your website. You'd mentioned yeah. that off air. Yes. So if, 
if anybody buys the book, and, and I'll thank you right now in advance for your purchase. I appreciate it, uh, uh, the support. If you purchase the book and you want to have it signed and you live someplace where I might not be signing books, you can go to my website, which is davidbossert.com, davidbossert.com, and there's a tab along the top uh, that says free stuff. If you click that, there's a little drop-down menu that comes up, and you have two choices. You can do uh, book plates or bookmarks. And frankly, you can send me a note saying you want bookmarks and book plates. Uh, and I'm happy to personalize or just sign a book plate, and they have an adhesive back to them. So you you send me a self-addressed stamped envelope, and I will sign the book plate, put it in that envelope, and send it back to you. And uh, you can peel off the back and stick it in your book, and you have a signed copy of the Weber book. And each one of the book plates, because I have book plates for some of the other books, each one of the book plates is themed to the book. So, um, I, you know, it's, it, it, it was something I started doing, uh, back, uh, after I did my first book, uh, on Roy Disney, um, uh, I, I had a lot of people reaching out to me on social media asking, you know, how can I get my book signed? How can I get my book signed? And I, I, you know, or are you going to be coming to Minneapolis or are you going to be coming to Kalamazoo? And, uh, and I was always sort of like, geez, I don't think I'm going to get to some of those places. And so I decided to come up with book plates, which, by the way, book plates, I have a little couple paragraph, little history of book plates. They've been around for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I just decided, well, this is kind of an inexpensive thing that I can do to help people out if they want to have an autographed copy of, of one of my books. That's great. Well, um, Craig will definitely put a, that link um, yep. to your site in our Absolutely. show notes. I, I will. And I'll definitely be sending you an envelope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, and I'm I'm always happy to do it, you know. Uh, and uh, you know, especially this time of year too, when people are buying presents, uh, and you know, if they wanted to have an autographed copy to give as a gift, uh, this is the next best thing to me sitting at a table signing the book. Yeah. So, so, so uh, again, the book is um, Cam Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios by Dave Bossert. And uh, this is a great gift not only for yourself, but for that Disney history fan in your life who has virtually every other book that there yeah. is. They, this is this is a good one for their collection. You know, and, th- and this is what's interesting about this is that it's unique. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's there's a ton of images in that book that people have never seen before. Mm-hmm. And and it really is insightful into a, you know, small but very important aspect of all of these great movies that we're fans of. You know, films like Pinocchio and Fantasia and Dumbo and Bambi and Cinderella and, you know, you just go on and on. Peter Pan. All these movies were made on that furniture. Mm-hmm. that's the amazing thing and there is sort of an aura to it you know there's 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 a sense of the furniture has a soul to it you know because it's it's patinaed uh with you know decades of these magnificent movies being crafted on the furniture yeah and and you capture that so well in your book 
you know, in your descriptions and photos. Well, well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us again on Connecting with Walt to share stories about Walt. And we definitely are looking forward to having you on the show again. I'm looking forward to it again as well. And I'm wishing you and uh, Craig and the entire your entire audience a wonderful holiday season. I hope you have uh, much happiness and health and joy uh, throughout the next month into the new year. Thank you so much. And we wish you and your family very happy holidays, Dave. Thank you very much. It was great talking with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. We enjoyed it, too. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Michael. Hey, well, it is now time again for our alternate version of This Week in Disney History. So, Craig, I hope your voice is still feeling up to it. This week we are looking at the week um, starting with December 16th. So, and again, we're doing our alternate, uh, we're going to be doing our alternate version for the rest of the year. Yes. Just so that... um, just because it's the holidays, and we actually have some big episodes. Yeah, no, we this we, week we do and next week. Yeah, <laughs> so for our big holiday edition. So okay, so for December sixteenth, um, Wed Enterprises is founded on December sixteenth, nineteen fifty-two, as a private company owned solely by Walt Disney to design and create Disneyland and to manage Disney's personal assets. Wed course, as we know, stands for Walter Elias Disney. Already hard at work on the Disneyland project are Walt's first three Imagineers. Can you name any of them? Hmm. I don't... I honestly don't no, it would just be a guess. Um, maybe one of them would be um, maybe Mark Davis. No, not yet. No. He was still animating. Okay. Um, huh. Mark came um, over after um, Disneyland was built. Okay, yeah, and that's that's the problem I'm running through my head in that I know a lot of the Imagineers I know they I know that they came in not this far. Not when Wed was first created. It was a little while longer, but it's also been a while since I've read read a biography um that might even talk about this. So I'm I actually just have to say I don't know. I I can't even make a guess. Okay. I I know it's no one. I don't think it's anyone big. Well, Harriet Burns. Is one um, of them. Yeah, that's big. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty big. And and the first woman, first first woman Imagineer. Yeah. Um, Fred Jerger, and Waythel Rogers. Okay. Yeah. So. If, so, if you so. gave me ten guesses, I probably would have got to Harriet Burns, but yeah. I would have never got to to Fred or Waithel. Yeah, yeah, Fred and Harriet actually worked together um, at the same sort of workstation for quite a while. Mm. So, um, in in nineteen eighty six, of course, Wed will be renamed um, Walt Disney Imagineering. So, 
And, uh, okay, December 17th. On December 17th, 1966, Royal Disney reiterates to company management and the Imagineering team that the company will continue to be run according to Walt's wishes. Uh, Walt Disney had passed away two days previously. He also makes an announcement regarding the Florida project. What announcement did Roy make? I think I know this one, and I believe this is when they finally announced that it would be Walt Disney World instead of just Disney World. Exactly. So, right. Walt's first name would be added to the title. So. Okay, December 18th. The television series Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color airs Disneyland Around the Seasons on December 18th, 1966. Since this is the first episode to air after the passing of Walt Disney, a portion of Walt's narrative is substituted by a brief tribute to Walt. Who hosted this tribute to Walt? Was it Dick Van Dyke? He was one of them, yes. Okay. I thought I remembered that. I if there's I do not know the name of any of the other ones though. Yeah. Um, it was NBC newsman Chet Huntley. Okay. There was yeah. a very popular show Huntley Brinkley report. So um in this episode this is one of my favorite episodes and this is available like on the um the disney treasure series exactly in in this episode walt takes viewers on a tour of disneyland to point out some of the newest additions to the park including new orleans square it's a small world and great moments with mr lincoln uh the episode also features bob cummings ronald reagan and paul freeze and weekly guest hosts will um, preside over the show for the remainder of the 1966-67 season. That's a good, good episode. Yes, it is. It's one of my favorites. So, um, okay, December 19th. On December 19th, 1958, ABC TV airs a Walt Disney Presents episode for the very first time that will become a Christmas television tradition for many years. What is the title of this episode? That is an easy one. It mm-hmm. is From All of Us to All of You. Yeah, yeah. And it's hosted by Jiminy Cricket yep. along with Mickey Mouse and Tinkerbell. And so the episode combines newly produced animation with clips from vintage animated shorts and feature films and is presented to the viewers as Christmas cards from the various characters starring in one. And the show begins with uh, Jiminy Cricket singing From All of Us to All of You, written by Disney lyricist Jill George, who, of course, was the pen name for the Disney Studios nurse Hazel George and veteran Disney composer Paul Smith. I looked forward to this every year because this is the only time you got to see clips from the classic you know Disney films until they were re-released every seven years. Yeah, no, this was um, this was something that uh, if it made it into the eighties and nineties, I don't believe I I ever got the chance to see it. But once I found out about it, you know, thank thank goodness for stuff like YouTube, where at least mm-hmm. you can still watch the you you can watch a clip of the song um, of Jiminy Cricket singing it. But I've I've never seen the full thing. And it's, at least from what I can remember, I've never seen it. But it makes me jealous because I guess in, like, Scandinavian countries, they still air it every year. 
it's like a yeah. huge thing for them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. There's a little there's a little blurb on uh, you know we have Comcast cable out here, and I listen to the Christmas you know, holiday for the seasons whatever it is ch- music channel, and they have Christmas. Christmas trivia, and one of them, and a listener actually um, sent me the, the the screen capture of it, but I'd already seen it. This supposedly on Christmas Eve in Sweden, I think it's Sweden. Yeah, it's a tradition to watch Donald Duck cartoons. Well, that's thought, did, yeah, yeah. I thought, it stemmed from start? this. Oh, so, that's what I was thinking yeah. when you said that. Yeah, no, it, it stemmed from this. I couldn't remember which country it was. That's why I kept it vague with. Scandinavia, but no, it, it it all stemmed from this. It's it's still a tradition to to have to have that going on, whether it's this special or changed around a little bit. They apparently still do it. I mean, I'm hoping that we have a listener from Sweden who can share more with us, tell if it's if it's true or not. Because all I have to go by is trivia and and random websites that might just mm-hmm. be regurgitating old information. The original show is available on YouTube because I came across it the other day, but there are certain segments that Disney has blocked out. So the person who put it up there fast forwards through it. Uh, And it's like the the clips from like Cinderella and Snow White. Yeah. But the clips from Peter Pan are fine. And, uh, you know, and Alice in Wonderland or whatever else there are. But, uh, but it's funny. It's like the, the big war horses, um, they, for some reason, Disney has blocked them. So, anyway, according to the, this fellow. So, but but it's interesting to see how much like that that from all of us to all of you, even though it was broadcast, you know, in black and white for years, it was it was filmed in color. Yeah. So it's nice to see it in color. Okay. Um. So for December twentieth. We lost a connection to Walt when a Disney family member passed away on December 20th, 1971. Um, who did we lose? Okay, you said 1971, so that would have been Roy. Exactly. Yep. Roy O. Disney, one of Walt's older brothers, business partner, and the co-founder of the Walt Disney Company, passes away at the age of 78 of a cerebral hemorrhage in Burbank, California. All righty, so a sad day. December was a rough month for the Disney family. Yeah. Because a, a large number of um, Disney family members passed away. Oh. You know, so, uh, so if your name's Disney, yeah. be careful in December. Yeah, well, watch, yeah, tread lightly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, December 21st, which Walt Disney film premiered at the Carthay Circle Theater in Los Angeles on December 21st, 1937? Well, I believe that would have to be the first one, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's right, exactly. And in attendance at the opening of the first American feature-length animated film are such stars as Charlie Chaplin, 
Douglas Fairbanks, Judy Garland, Carol Lombard, John Barrymore, Marlena Dietrich, and future Disney legend, the first Disney legend, Fred McMurray. Also attending the premiere is Adriana Casalotti, uh, who apparently was in the rafters. Hmm. Um, and uh, Snow White director David Hand, and a teenager named Marjorie Belcher, later known as Marge Champion, the animator's live-action model for Snow White. Okay, December 22nd. This is right up your alley here, this one. Frankie Darrow, the voice of Lampwick, who's the tough older boy from the streets in a 1940 Disney classic, Pinocchio, is born on December 22nd, 1917. Sci-fi fans, though, may know him better for what role in this classic 1956 science fiction film? I actually think I know this one. Uh Um, I feel like I've heard this trivia somewhere before, but isn't he Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet? He is. He's one of two actors who portrayed Robbie the Robot. Yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. If you've never seen it, it's amazing. It is. Oh, it's fantastic. It's, (laughs) It's one that I did not... I'll be completely honest. The reason why I saw it the first time was not because of its its symbol as a, a sci-fi classic. It was because I was a huge Leslie Nielsen fan when I was growing up watching stuff like Airplane and Naked Gun. So uh-huh. then when I found out that he was in, in this sci-fi movie, um, I watched it and I'm like, wow, this is excellent. So And then, of course... Uh, you, you start to learn more about it as time goes on and find out how how much of an impact it made on sci-fi movies. I mean, it's it's not your cheesy 50s, 60s sci-fi movie. Oh, it's no. very well done. It's very well done. I mean, it holds up really yeah, well. More than Black Hole. <laughs> yeah. I think the effects are even better. <laughs> I'd agree. <laughs> oh. So, well, good job. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you did very well, even in your d- debilitated state. Yes. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, you picked easy questions for me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I can't well, sound then, good, at least I can do good. Uh, well, there were a lot, a lot of noteworthy things that yeah. that were worth um, that were worth letting fo- reminding folks about. Craig, I think Kem Weber, mid-century furniture... I can't even say the word. Kem Weber, mid-century furniture designs for the Disney Studios would be a great holiday gift for that Disney history fan on your list. This seems to have everything. Uh, I I just found this book fascinating, as I found always find David Bossert fascinating. Yeah, to to listen to. So, um, no, so it anyway, was a great so, episode. Yeah, most definitely. Now, you know, on a related topic, do you remember that book by Stephen Clark and Becky Klein, the Walt Disney Studios, A Lot to Remember, that was recalled shortly after it was published in October 2016? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, now they give like a little blurb to Ken Weber, nothing like what Dave Bossert, you know, goes into. But, you know, I managed to get a copy before those books were pulled, but I read on social media... I don't know, a week or two ago, that supposedly the book is going to be re-released in 2019. 
So, um, so if it's true, wow. you know, it'll be interesting to compare the differences. Yeah, well, I'll be happy to be able to get it for the first time because that was one that I I saw, and I remember it being on pre-order, 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 and I think we've talked about it on the show. I didn't, I never bother pre-ordering stuff. Uh, some random things I will, but for some reason, I'm that weirdo who's like, nope, I don't want to pre-order it. I have, don't uh, don't ask me why. I really don't understand. And then when it was supposed to come out, then it, you couldn't order it anymore. So I'll be excited if this is true, just so I can get it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good book. I know even people that pre-ordered it, a lot of them did not get their orders. I don't know how mine squeaked through. Well, but uh, consider but, yourself lucky every day for oh, it. Oh, I do. So anyway, but yeah, so definitely pick up Dave Bossert's book and Craig will have links in our show notes to where you can get the book and also Dave's site where you can get those nifty uh, book plates and stuff, which I have to remember to do. Yes. Because I think I have almost all his books, so I need book plates for all of them. Because even if he makes a public appearance, I can't drag all these books with me. I mean, (laughs) so anyway. So, okay. And, um, oh, if folks are going to be at the Walt Disney Family Museum this Saturday, December 15th, I will be there also because I'm going to hear Brad Bird talk about how Walt's nine old men were an influence on him in his career. So that should be interesting. I'm sure I'll talk about it on the show. So if you are there, be sure to say hello. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me, uh, well, when we're doing them, we're currently on a hiatus (laughs) with all of our shows. But you can find me Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, Wednesdays on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, Thursdays on the Universal Edition podcast. Uh, No more Diz Daily Fix, so, well, soon, if not at all, so can't say that anymore. I'll have to strike that from my my normal spiel. Uh, But then always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. Michael, what about you? Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say that almost all the shows are on hiatus. (laughs) We we will have our holiday episode next week, and then we will go on our holiday hiatus. Yes, good point. the rest of the Diz. So. So you can always send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. That is the preferred place because I can keep track of them. Um, Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, uh, check me out at Michael Bowling. That's the page at the uh, Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, at michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with both me on Craig on Twitter at our official Connecting with Walt Twitter page at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And speaking of which, there I came across that there was a, a Facebook page I subscribed to a little while ago. I think they're fairly new called Disney Inspires, and it's all one word. And they are running a contest about the top 50 um, Disney podcasts. And uh, all of the Diz, every single one of the Diz um, podcasts is, or 
most summer webcasts are all up there. And um, so the way this works is they're running this contest. And if you go, what they're trying to do is then they're going to pick the top winners. And it's based on who gets the most votes. So they want you not only to post positive reviews and ratings for your favorite podcast, which I hope will be connecting with Walt, um, but also they would like you to go to their Facebook page, Disney Inspires, and um, also vote there as well, if I'm understanding how this all works. So uh, so if you if you want to, you know, get Connecting with Walt up there to be one of the top, uh, you know, top podcasts, you know, we'd appreciate it. So head out to Disney Inspires. And I think they have a web page to DisneyInspires.com and, you know, vote for Connecting with Walt. A listener told wrote the other day that we were in the top three, but that was a few days ago. So um, anyway, so thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.